In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us in the Mass. It's um, um, how grateful we are um, to have Mass back again. Um, everybody feels the absence, the um, this gap. Um, our lives aren't the same. Um, not beginning the day with you in prayer and the Mass. So, for Father's arrival, um, let a blessing be on him and all that he is facing ahead of him. Um, draw him closer to you, increase his love in all that he does, his wisdom. Um, help him find a welcome parish here that um, everybody um, offer themselves, uh, make an opening for him. Um, help us to grow also um, in our love of you and help us all to bring that um, to all that we do, particularly with each other. Um, Ephaphatha, um, open um, Christ's words this morning when he um, healed the uh, deaf-mute, um, asked his eyes to open and his ears open um, to receive him. Um, Ephaphatha, let, let it be, um, let this opening take place for all of us. Um, help us to increase our vision to hear you, to be better at hearing you. We so often live in our, we're so competent. Um, the gifts you've given us are amazing. It makes it so easy to take you for granted. Help all of us not to do that. Um, help us to take seriously how important it is that we make a place for prayers. Um, to offer ourselves to hear you, um, to see you working around us, and to bring you um, to all that we do. You call us to holiness, not security, not comfort, holiness, and a cross. Strengthen all of us in our efforts to grow into that holiness, and to become better people in all that we do, most especially in all that we do with each other. Ask a special blessing on Sue. Surround her with your protection. Um, let her go in peace. Um, keep her safe. Um, we want her back here. So take care of her, please. Do the same for all of us. Um, watch over our families, our struggles with our kids. Um, help us to be careful of those things that we've taken on us from our culture. Um, to be nice, to be respectable, um, because so often they're traps. They make it easier for us not to do the things that you ask us to do, the risks that we take, the pains that come from it. Strengthen us to be with you always and everywhere. The words in the Mass are <coughs> to always and everywhere be thankful. Help us to do that, most especially when we're struggling. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, okay. Can you take out soliloquy of the Spanish cloister? <coughs> Funny, weren't you here Monday night? What am I? Hi, Lewis. 
I'm I'm really losing it. It's getting worse and worse. I don't think Suzanne. Yeah, we gave him out last week or two weeks ago. I don't think she brought puppies. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, he did. <coughs> Here, I did find Who doesn't? Who doesn't have copies? We charge double for. Yeah, for. for yeah, you can't stay And more than double for some people. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you are known. Thank you. you are known. Thank you. We have lots of those. Is everybody okay? David, you got? Yes, sir. Most of you. I don't know. What are we looking for? So we'll give the. I'll put it here and I'll look. Remember, this is the one of the reasons for doing this. I, I should have done this a couple weeks ago, but I, I, one week we didn't do lyrics, and so it skipped us. Um, we were in the Inferno, Dante's Inferno, and when I was thinking about lyrics, I thought immediately of Eliot's Proof Rock for reasons you all know now. The Proof Prufra seems to be a damned figure. Uh, there's that head note that Dante takes from Guido in Hell, this passage we looked at briefly. Um, Prufra doesn't do anything bad, as far as we know. He's not married, he's not committing adultery, he doesn't commit murder, but he's a soul so, so absorbed in himself. He lives so much for himself. He's so enclosed in himself. Um, that he has no connection with the world outside. And you remember the ending of the poem when he said that he, he imagines the mermaids singing with their hair blown back in this image of beauty. It's a siren-like image. And then saying, until human voices wake us and we drown. So we, we know that, and, and we know from the poem when, when Prufrock is on this way, on his way to the assassination, that he makes all these excuses, he gives all the reasons for not doing it, he's not going to risk this relationship. Do I dare, do I dare, do I dare, I've known them all already, I've known them all already. He's giving himself reasons not to act. So, And, and the images of himself, walking into a room so, so self-conscious that everybody will see him, and all of that's played off against a world that in itself seems so false. The women come and go talking to Michelangelo, it's as if everybody's preoccupied with art and an aesthetic um, um, quality to things. And I want to underscore that because I think, I think that's a quality that defines our own culture, at least as I look at it. If you think about how much time we spend on a computer, and, and I don't want to take a political side here, I think probably you already know where I am and the difficulties of it, but um, I think it's a fair judgment to say that Donald Trump does a lot to shoot himself in the foot. I mean, he's, he's I, I I'm conservative, I support his policies, but, but his manner can be so offensive. 
And when you set him against, I, I have almost no good to say about Obama, but when you set Trump against Obama as men, um, Obama had everything that most people want in a president, a kind of dignity, articulate, a calm, a presence. Um, Trump lacks those qualities. Um, what he's doing to me is, I think, remarkable and it's praiseworthy. Um, but, but his manner in dealing with things is, is, is not very, it's lacking in lots of ways. If you listen to the left, which isn't a very well-educated, articulate class, leftward leading, most of its judgments are aesthetic. And I'm aware of myself, I don't, I don't, I don't know where any of you are on this, but I, I know that it's so easy to make a judgment based on aesthetic qualities. If a guy's got tattoos or the right kind of hair, we're quick to judge or... That is, we have this aesthetic filter and we see the world through it and when the world doesn't come up to it, it's quick for us to be judgmental. If somebody's not articulate or smooth or polished, we're more quickly to run them off, to dismiss them, write them off, sorry. So we live in that kind of world. That's Prufrock's world. He lives in an aesthetic world removed from reality. In one sense, we can say he's like a figure who's caught with by the sirens. He's so, so taken by the beauty of things. And he's drawn into that world. So remember in the Odyssey, when Odysseus got close to the siren shoreline, it was um, strewn, littered with skulls, <laughs> men who were drawn to this beauty. So I think Shake or, or Eliot is aware of that in his presentation of proof rock. He's in his own world, so he's no murderers, no adultery. As far as we know, he, didn't, he hasn't committed any mortal sins, but he's absolutely out of touch with reality. He's lived in his world. If that's the way he goes to the next life, it's a serious question whether that next life won't be infernal. I think that's what Eliot is showing us. One of the models for Eliot's proof rock is, um, is Browning, number of Browning's, um, what are called dramatic monologues. The lyric poem is presented from the point of view of a character. You know that the lyric tends to be traditional, a poet expressing his own feelings, usually for his beloved. It's one of the ironies of proof rock. It's called the love song of Jacob proof rock. Eliot takes that tradition, counts on our awareness of it for us to see the ironies. All love poems are declarations of love. We, we know the torment, the tormented heart of the poet. He longs for his beloved. She's refused him. He grieves. He's, you know, all of that. <clears throat> Eliot's playing against that. That's why it's called the love song. Because this couldn't be farther away from love. Prufrock does everything he can to avoid it, to get around it, to give himself excuses. Some of the models for Prufrock come from Browning. Who, who was one of the earliest um, practitioners of, of what we call the dramatic monologue. It's a, it's a character presented himself in a dramatic situation. So it belongs to the lyrics, the lyric tradition. It's a poet, or it's a figure expressing himself, what's going on. In this particular one, I, I chose it to go with our work on the Inferno, with Proof Rock, because it's a serious question whether the person we get here isn't damned. And I'll leave that to you. I'm going to ask the question when we're, when I'm done with it. You know, how do we see this guy? So it's 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 spoken by a friar, somebody in orders, who has nothing to good good to say about one of his fellow brothers, his 
brother Lawrence. Okay, so we can picture the two of them moving in the same space together, passing each other, sitting down to meals, working in the community together, praying together, those sorts of things that make up holy life. So just the way Elliot did with Prufrock in the 19th century, Browning is doing it with this person. Because what he's doing is pulling back the veil on religious life. So instead of this very pious figure who does everything right, we get this. Okay? Browning's the soliloquy of the <coughs> Spanish cloister. <coughs> Grr. There go my heart's abhorrence. What are your damn flower pots do? If hate killed men, Brother Lawrence, God's blood would not mind kill you. What? Your myrtle bush wants trimming? Oh, that rose has prior claims? Need its leaden vase filled brimming? Hell dry you up with its flames. Jeez. So he's wishing him to hell twice now, once and dead. I'm a little angry there. And remember, this is all interior. The, the lyric shows us what's invisible. The lyric takes us into the inner life of a person, what we don't see on the outside. It's where the lyric generally takes us. So nobody is aware of this except us. At the meal we sit together, salve TB, it's hail. So when he sits down, this friar says to Lawrence, hail, how are you doing? <laughs> it's cheerful. Salve TB, I must hear wise talk of the kind of weather, sort of season, time of year, not a plenteous court crop, scarcely dare we hope, oh God. that is he's mimicking the subjects that typically come up. Dare we hope oak goals? I doubt. What's the Latin name for parsley? What's the Greek name for swine's snout? <laughs> I hope everybody hears the sarcasm. He, he's mimicking these subjects that come up and then extrapolating on his own. So, he's, so I, apparent, you know, they'll say, what's the Greek for altar or worship or, you know, and sometimes small talk. But he's throwing in there what's the Greek name for swine snout? Probably a plant. It's 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 probably one of the words he wants to use to describe Lawrence. Who? We'll have our platter burnished, laid with care on our own shelf, with a fire new spoon we're furnished, and a goblet for oneself. Rinse like something sacrificial, ere tis fit to touch our chaps, marked with L for our initial. He he. There his lily snaps. I think the scene is he's trimming the flowers, Lawrence is not around, and while he's trimming it, deliberately he clips them, cuts them, so they're not going to grow. So here's an instance of his spite. Saint, forsooth, while brown Dolores squats outside the convent bank with such a chica, telling stories, steeping tresses in the tank. Blue-black, lustrous, thick, like horsehairs. Can't I see his dead eye glow? Brights twirled Barbary Corsairs, a pirate's. That is, if he let it show. Because <coughs> obviously, Lawrence is modest and respectful. And when, he shows, when he finishes reflection, knife and fork, he never lays crosswise to my recollection, as I do in, Je in Je Jesus' praise. I, the Trinity, il illustrate. Drinking water and orange pulp in three sips, the Aryan frustrate while he drains his at one gulp. So, when dinner's over, Lawrence, take, first of all, he takes this big gulp, so he's not very well-mannered, and doesn't do anything with the silverware, whereas this guy crosses it as a sign of holiness. So outwardly, he seems very pious. He's doing everything he should do to show how pious he is, how proper, 
puts it um, as a symbol, a sign of the Trinity. So everybody outside sees this guy as pious, good. Oh, those melons, if he's able, we, uh, we're to have a feast, so nice. One goes to the abbot's table, all of us get each a slice. How go on your flowers, none double, not one fruit sort can you spy? Strange, and I too, at such a trouble, keep them close-nipped on the sly. <laughs> if they're not growing, it's no wonder, because he keeps cutting them. Um, there's a great text in Galatians, once you trip on it, entails 29 distinct damnations, one sure if another fails. I think this is from Galatians early, where um, Paul is listing those sins that are dangerous for people and, and telling, warning the readers to stay away, do not commit those. This says district damnations instead of distinct, and there's a, I don't understand oh, what district I don't either. would mean, and maybe a typo. I don't, I'll have to look now, maybe. Um, if it is, it's a locale, you know, a certain, okay. I'm not sure. One sure if another fails, if I trip him just a dying, sure of heaven as sure can be, spin him round and send him flying off to hell, a manichae. <laughs> so remember the opening trap chapter he wanted, or the stance he wanted to kill him, another one he wants to wish him into flames, into damnation, and here he wants to do something that will damn him. Um, or my scrofulous French novel on the gray paper with blunt type, simply glance at it, you grovel, hand and foot in Belial's gripe. If I double down its pages at the woeful sixteenth print, when he gathers his green pages, opaceve, and slip it in. Oh, there's Satan, one might venture, pledges one soul to him, yet leaves such a flaw in the indenture as he'd missed, as he'd missed till past retrieve, blasted lay that rose acacia we're so proud of. Hi, Z, Hein, I think the bells are ringing for Vespers here. Um, Saint, there's Vespers, Plina Gratia, Hail Virgin. Ave, Virgo, grrr, you swine. I'm, I don't want to take any time on this. It's just, I'm, you know that we've begun classes with lyrics, and if any of you go back to our beginnings, we've never seen anything like Proofrock or this. All of them have been tender um, <coughs> expressions of love, the um, supernatural love, you know, the four year, or the wind hover, or any number of those poems, some of John Donne's poems, all of them have been feelingful and um, what, what we would call ordinate emotions, lawful, licit. Um, this is something entirely different, and they're both modern. So it shows, one of the ways we can read this is to see that something's happening in the modern world. If you go back to Shakespeare's sonnets, when Shakespeare deals with dark things, because he does in some of the sonnets, he's, Shakespeare's not less aware of evil than moderns. He's as clear-sighted about evil as Dante is. <coughs> but they treat poetry, they deal with poetry in a very different way from moderns. They tend to sh deal with back bad things, but there's a beauty to what they do, and the bad things are always answered. Always. But in these two poems, we're seeing something very, very different. So, in one way, we can say Browning, Eliot, and others are taking this lyric tradition in which poets have tended to sentimentalize love, to not look at dark things. Think about Dante's influence here, particularly for Eliot. Poets 
tendency to sentimentalize love, to not deal with evil. And now you got these poets going into the interior and showing us things are not as sweet as, you know. I'm just going to ask one question and go, unless anybody has a, a brief comment, because I, I want to get on to Dante. But, so is this guy, is he damned or not? I mean, how, wait, or, now let me preface it. Lots of modern critics, lots of modern critics will say about this guy, um, they're responding to critics who are, they, in their mind, too severe. They say, oh, this is just good fun. It's all humor. It's, it's grotesque humor. It's nothing but light humor. So are we to take this as just light humor, or is this guy damned? Like Prufrock, if, if you think that Prufrock is damned. Is this just light, grotesque humor that we laugh at? And, or is it not? What do you guys think? Debbie, what do you think? I think he's oh. well on his way in damned. I mean, you know, you never can say for sure if he's going to have a change of heart, but it's our heart that leads us to the interior post-theatrical. Yeah. You think he's on his way? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? I think he needs to go to confession. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how that would go. Well, <coughs> forgive, and then he can forget all his bad stuff. To do you think this Lawrence. guy has a? According to the poem, do you think this guy has any sense of remorse or contrition in him? Well, we can work or on any that. need, or any need to confess? Well, he feels very justified. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's nothing. I mean, he's so so one one dimensional. Only one way. There's. I don't. I don't find a tension here. You know. I wish I had regret or Satan. Satan was more given to moments of contrition, which to me made no sense, but anybody else? The only thing I have to say is I'm a master gardener and I didn't know there were people standing on the side damning me to help. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, but clipping back your buds. Clipping back my yes. buds. <laughs> Just when you thought you were going to see a flower the next day, there's nothing there. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> Here, the other thing I just want to throw out, because I'm, I'm thinking of these critics who whose responses are to whitewash this, to it's grotesque comedy and leave it alone at that. Browning's, Browning's pulling back the veil on religious life. He does it in a number of poems. The next one we read, the other one with this one. Um, um, my Last Duchess. The, yeah, My Last Duchess <coughs> belongs to the same group of poems. We'll read it next week. You go online and listen to it so you don't miss it. You don't want to miss that. You don't want to miss that, Sue. Um, Browning's pulling the veil back on religious life. He's asking us to see things are not according to the way they appear. That there's more going on. And the other thing I just want you to remember is Christ said, you've heard it said, um, do not kill. I'm telling you if you get angry at a man. You heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you even think about it inside, you've already committed the act. Everything Christ does, and Paul, by the way, Paul following him. If you watch Paul explicating, trying to, excuse me, trying to make sense. Paul's amazing. The, the older I get, the more amazed I am. He takes Christ's life and makes it clear conceptually. He's the first great theologian in my mind. 
he, he does, he, 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 his whole background was in text as, as, a, as a Jewish person. So he learned how to read really well, really well. But now he's got this living person who's God and man, and he has to take his learning and make sense of it. And what he sees, if you think about this, because he, nobody's written about Christ then. I mean, nobody's explicated, nobody's explaining. He's the first one who takes his actions and makes clear what they mean. So Christ himself gives primacy of the invisible, the interior, over the exterior, the Jewish world, the, the following, showing how good you are. Christ puts that to waste. The most important thing for him is our interior, who we are inside, what people don't see. And Paul, you know from your reading Paul, does the same thing, exactly. The inner life is far more important than a life full of rituals and um, following the law to show how righteous you are. So, so when I read this poem, I just keep you know I keep those two things in my mind. You can it is light and it's comic, um, but there's also a very very dark quality to what's going on with this guy in his inner life. Well, yeah, the biblical quote that you gave was right up the alley where I was going. <coughs> I can remember when Jimmy Carter said he had committed adultery in his mind, mm -hmm. and that everybody just scoffed at that and thought he was being an idiot. Right. And so it shows that people look at it's only outward acts. This can be excused, but right. I mean, I think it's yes. clear that's not the case. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm just saying that's a good example. It's really good. Okay, so <laughs> we've left the inferno. We're out of hell, but um, we're, we're going to do one more lyric. We're going to do another. Promise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that hurt. <laughs> that that, that, that I know that <laughs> that comes from years of experience, which just makes the wound deeper. No, no, I'm I'm glad for your humor. Um, so, so, yeah. so you character not you characterize is it characterized as comedy because it's so absurd? I mean, I don't I, the intensity of the things he's saying. I wouldn't think it's comedy, but I don't have the insight. Part. Did you have? Were you going to say something? Good? Anybody? No, I think a lot of times we laugh at things that are unclean. You know, they're yes, part of it's absurd. It's not really funny, mm -hmm. but it's we all have. Well, maybe we don't all. I have had thoughts instantaneously, exactly like, that. like you know, <laughs> that we're not kind. I would not want them broadcast. Right. And then you, you repent of them, but. <clears throat> There are times where it's the sarcasm, I guess. Is I guess maybe you have to say sometimes it's so absurd you just have to laugh it off and ignore mm -hmm. it. Maybe David, let me let me try to answer that more directly myself. Um, I believe that lots of us experience. The, I mean, we can in our marriages sitting together at the same ta table. Sometimes there can be in, uh, irritations that we don't express. You know, so so these are very much like real life. I mean, you have to say. The, the serious question is, does he repent? Does he give any son? You know, he, he doesn't. But but I think one of the reasons this is, this is comic, really, on the surface, is comic, is because it's so exaggerated. Grr, there go my heart's abhorrence. What are your damn flowers pots do? If he killed men, brother, you know. All of it's so, so overdone. Uh, that's one element of, that makes it comic. The other, I think, is remember, it's put in a rhyme 
it's, it's following a conventional rhyme pattern, or a, sorry, a rhythmic. You've got, I mean, you can hear the rhythm. What, your myrtle bush wants trimming? Oh, that rose has prior claims, needs the laden vase filled brimming. You can hear the rhythms. So while we're getting something very serious, it's put to a musical, it's given a musical quality that just intensifies the exaggeration. So, so, so much of the language is just overdone. Who will have our planter burnished, laid with care, and our, you know, it just goes on and on like that. So, um, it creates a surface that's, I think, in some ways funny, and meant to be because. In that sense, it reinforces the sense that we're looking at the surface of something, and on the surface, nothing there. But once you start looking past the surface, do you see the the spiritual character of everything? Then, then you get a very dark picture, and that's why they use the word grotesque comedy or dark comedy. Um, but my own my own response to this poem, my own <coughs> judgment or whatever you want to call it, is that um, in lots of ways this. This figure is a prototype for um, proof rock. We're looking at a damned soul. I mean, he he's he he want he hates this man. He wants him dead. He wants him damned. He's full of spite. Um, he wants to set him up so that he'll go to hell. I mean, those are evil. These are those are not innocent thoughts. And if and and I think I mean it goes really to what Sue said so well. Um, if you're critics who don't take the interior life that seriously, then you're not going to give them that weight. If you hear Christ saying, um, you've heard that, that you're not supposed to kill somebody, I'm telling if you get angry. You've heard it said, um, you shall not commit adultery, I'm telling you if you had that thought, you've already... Christ is saying the spiritual life, what goes on inside of us, is far more important than our outward actions. The Jewish the Jewish world and our modern world we tend to we tend to this is Homer's the Iliad we tend to evaluate people according to how how well they profit us how much money we make um, how much we advance ourselves in the world our stature in the world our careers our money-making power you know we, t we t the world has never rarely tended the world tended to judge people by their inner selves, the things that are less visible. The people who follow Christ tend to move off to the mar margins of the world. They're not at the center of the world. The world's given to power, ego, <coughs> advancement, you know. So the saints, the saints, Thomas, we watched the movie together, Thomas More, crucified, Socrates, crucified, Christ, crucified, the saints, killed. Why? Because they're living an interior odd that that calls into question everything about the modern or the world that they're in, you know, the, the, the importance the world gives to things. So, hey Bob, I have one comment about as far as humor is concerned mm -hmm. and dark humor like this. I think sometimes we as people see truth in something and it makes us uncomfortable, cool. really uncomfortable, yeah. and so we laugh it off mm -hmm. yeah. so that we don't really have to examine you, yes, yeah. it, it, it. It's easier to do that because yes. then we can just move on. Yes. Because it's just funny. Yes. Well, yes. It, it's not really funny. Yes. Yeah. Um, right. And it and it speaks to who we are. Yep. Yep. Couldn't agree more. I know all of us know that. Um, yeah. 
um, we don't like, you've been saying it from the beginning, one of the reasons that I love this literature so well and one of the reasons that, you know, we've done this is because it helps us to see those things about ourselves that we don't like to look at. It's hard to look at our faults, particularly when everybody wants to seem good because then we don't feel like we're worthy of something or good enough or, you know, um, okay. Um, Let's do Dante. Um, in the next couple of weeks, we're <coughs> going to come back to find a date for the dinner. Um, I'm eager to get together again because I love the food you guys are. <laughs> it's just a good evening. And, I, and I'm really, I'm, I'm, how's that for selfishness? Um, Honesty. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to, to surprising you with this movie to see what your reaction is. Um, because it's going to be, I'm assuming for lots of you, very, very different from what you usually experience. So, are you going to tell us what it is? Nope. No. You already know that I'm not. Um, probably, okay. Probably. Yes. The tenth is what we were talking about. Yeah, somewhere around the tenth. We've got to get together and talk about it. Spring break is somewhere in there, and people are going to be in, a, in and out of town. So I just, I, I don't want to do it today, but sometime in the next week or two, we, we'll throw out dates and and schedule that. Dinner Plus night. Lens starts on March the 7th. March 7th? So we just eat more carefully, the smaller portion. <laughs> Very quickly, um, we talked about Dante as a quester, a, a man on a journey, that he, he belongs, and Dante himself sees himself as belonging to the epic tradition. Remember, the epic has always been about a hero with a divinely appointed task, something the gods gave him to deal with the disorder of that time, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Um, and you know how aware Dante is, Virgil's his guide. So in one sense, he's doing what Milton's doing, he's taking the epic past, bringing it into the present. You know that Milton did that in a very, very dark way. Dante's, Milton condemned the past. Dante's not. He's learning from it. He's bringing it into the present, uh, most especially in Virgil. But Dante himself is a is on a quest. Uh, like Moses, he he wanted nothing to do with this. He tried to climb that mountain, gets pushed back, and Virgil comes to him and says, "We've got to go down." Dante's first response is, "Aeneas did that. Paul did that. They both went into the other world." You know, Paul had his vision in the third heaven. Aeneas went into the underworld. Dante saw that as stuff for heroes. He wasn't a hero. He said, that's not for me. Virgil told him to knock it off and pull himself together and go. So it's one of the first instances of Virgil rebuking Dante, telling him to, um, to muster some courage and get ready to set off. All along we've been watching Dante respond to things and learn from what he's seen. And and often from Virgil's teaching. And we've seen that the, 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 most, the greatest temptation for Dante is to feel sorry, to, to experience this suffering and, and um, respond in pity and in a way that overwhelms him. He passes out easily a number of times. Uh, but as he goes along, um, he gets better. And the, I think 
right? The question that I asked you at the end of our last class was, uh, how do we understand Dante at the end when he kicks Baca and pulls his hair out and promises Albrigo that he will take the ice crust off his eyes, vows, and then breaks a vow. And one of the reasons I raised those questions is because critics often, I mean, it goes to Sue's observation a minute ago that they have a way of reading things without seeing things because they're judging them by a surface that Dante himself is critiquing. Um, they say that Dante's just like the sinners. It's an indication that he's still in sin. Um, I think there's not a question that he's in sin. <clears throat> he couldn't get up the mountain. <clears throat> but the question is, is he ch was he changing? Was he changing in the book? At that point, was he doing something wrong? I think we talked about that, yeah. And my own reading of that is that I don't think he is doing something wrong. Um, Dante's not as susceptible to pity as he once was. And remember, I've given the definition. Pity is um, the identification we have with another person who's <coughs> suffering, sometimes unjustly. So we identify with that person and that person's suffering. That's a natural response. It's not, a, it's not bad. The, the question is, if it becomes habitual, that that defines our actions, it can trap us. Because there's a difference between pity and love. Pity is an identification with another person in person suffering. Love means acting for the good of another person. That means very often doing things that are hard to do for that person and for ourselves. Remember in the tragic works, in Aristotle's works, the two emotions that needed purging were fear and pity. Because both of them become paralyzing. We can get trapped in them. So as Dante moves through the inferno, I, th I think the way Dante the poet, the way Dante the poet is presented, Dante the pilgrim, is to, to show that he, he's getting better. And remember, there's, that, there's also that turn in the sticks, the river sticks, when he pushes, I think it's Argenti down, and Virgil says, blessed is the soul that bore you. And I think one of the things we're supposed to see allegorically at that moment is that represents a turn. That, that at that moment Dante's not, not even necessarily consciously, but he's identifying himself with Christ. He's doing what he should do. Adding punishments to the damned only puts you more in accord with God's own will. So to feel sorry for sinners because they're in hell is in one way to go against God and his will. And remember I tried to make a to nuance that judgment. Um, one of the one of the parishioners in the evening class said, Well, we're asked to love the sinner and hate the sin. Yeah. But the difficulty with that, and I hope everybody sees this, uh, and it goes to Debbie's um comment earlier. Um Dante set us in a world of final ends. The souls in hell are not going to change. We're in a world of final ends, right? We're not in our world. We're in a world of final We're seeing the end result of things. People have chosen, they're fixed. That's eternally what they're going to do. To love a sinner there is to go against God's will because you're loving something evil. When Dante comes back to the world, he's going to have to deal with... with um, sinful people. And, and obviously he's going to be critical of them because, well, you'll see when we get to the Paradiso, 
it's going to become clear to him that he's got a calling. He's got to come back and write this book, even though it's going to make people angry at him. He's got to do, he's got to live the truth, to love, to, to do God's justice, to do his will, to bring justice and mercy to what he does, or he's going to be against God. But in a, in a world of, of secondary ends, um, people are not yet damned. I mean, it was um, Debbie's remark about this guy. He's on the way. You know? In the world, we're asked to do everything we do in faith, hope, and love. And I've said this before. Hope is only real when we have no reason for hoping. Love is only real when we have no reason for loving somebody. Faith is only real when we have no reason. So in the world, we're asked to hate the sin and love the sinner because we, we hope that that person will turn, whatever that person's problems are. But in hell, that's not so. There's no possibility of a turn. So if for Dante to love any of those sinners would be to set himself against goodness and support evil. <clears throat> so Dante's getting better and better, and now, having experienced hell, he's going to go into purgatory, and that's where we are. That's where we're going. Now some of the, some of the obvious differences between these two worlds. R remember that um, the people in hell are fixed. I, I think I put the I described their condition last week this way motion without free will or thought is a machine yes is everybody motion without free will or thought is a machine or a zombie okay the people in hell are machine like they're caught even though they're humans in a sense, they've lost everything about them that's, that, that makes us who we are. They're, they're fixed in doing something a certain way. They chose it, that's what they've got. So Dante's showing us the danger of doing something and not changing it, not correcting ourselves to, to change what we do. <coughs> in purgatory, people are in motion wanting to change. So if hell is defined as a place of justice, people are getting just what they deserve. Purgatory is a place where people are answering justice. They have to, they have to admit their wrongs, but they're different from the people in hell because they, they want a mercy. They want to correct them. Nothing goes, nothing, in, nothing, underscore that, nothing goes on in purgatory that doesn't have God's initiative everywhere. They're only there in purgatory because of a grace given by God. They were open to it, they wanted to change, they've got it. So everything in purgatory is correcting themselves. Too proud, too envious, too wrathful, too slothful, um, too gluttonous, um, too avaricious, too lustful. Those are, the, those are the levels. Those are the sins being purged. So in, in the difference between the fundamental difference between purgatory and hell is that people in purgatory recognize their sins, they're humble enough to admit them, and they're beginning to do the work to change them. And as they do, they go up the mountain. Hell is a place of darkness. It's it's fixed motion. There's no light. People use each other to carry out whatever their appetites are, and we've seen. Dante was very clear in the in the uh, contrapassos what 
what the nature of the sin was. Purgatory is a place of light. The, um, the sinners have moved into God's light, so that sunlight is an image of God's grace in their life. In one sense, we can say, and, and I say this really seriously, I actually believe it, the time, a, a modern scientist actually said this, um, Deschardins, um, that time is God's love. Time is God's love. Darkness of hell is an absence. It's a separation from God. People are not moving. There's no light. The motion is mechanical. In, in purgatory, the souls are more with one God's own love. What they're doing is love. With what all they do with each other. They try to help each other. They're singing. They pray every night. They sing together. They take a joy in their penance. They're not hanging their heads. They're not making excuses. They've already admitted their faults. What they're doing now is working to change. Um, one last thing about the differences, because it's so important, you can overlook it. I've said before, the mode of knowledge, the mode of knowing in <coughs> inferno, in hell, is irony. It, it defines that the nature of hell. Dante... Do the souls in hell have any sense of irony about themselves? None. They've lost the good of the intellect. This is so important. They've lost the good of the intellect. So they can't see themselves. They won't. They, they refuse. They will not. They don't have the humility to admit they're wrong. So they have no sense of irony. Irony means you stand outside something and you're aware of incongruity. Things are not as they seem. That's what irony is, right? There's some incongruity. Things aren't the way they seem. There's an irony there, we say. Dante's presence in hell makes everything ironic because since we see things through his eyes, we see things the sinners don't. And we're aware of the ironies. The ironies are more intense because the sinners themselves are not aware of them. They're locked. They're outside of the mind. I mean, they're, they're caught. So irony is the mode of knowing, um, but it only comes into play because Dante's present. By his presence, we're made aware of the ironies. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. So, so we know through ironies. When Dante emerges on the level of on the mountain of purgatory, the shores of purgatory, what he's going to experience again and again are not ironies so much because the people admit their sins. The ironies are are dropping away. The constant experience is an experience of wonder. They look at Dante, level after level, the, the shades will look at Dante um, in wonder. There's a, something of an irony there, but the, the greater emotion is wonder. Because everywhere he goes, he casts a shadow. He's, got, he's in his body. When the shades don't have a body, they don't cast, the sun goes through them. And Dante is going to be asking questions about things, so he's going to be learning. In the middle of Purgatorio, we're going to get Virgil's two famous discourses on free will and love and body and soul. It's going to go to the question some of you have had, how, do they, how, how can Dante recognize the souls when they have no bodies? Because the soul always carries the imprint of the body even when it goes to the next life. So each soul has its own identity. In the middle of the Purgatorio, an amazing learning is going to go on that never went on in the Inferno. Not quite the same way. He's going to give his famous discourse on love, on free will, and the relationship of the body to the soul. 
He's, that is, he's going to show us what makes us amazingly human. What God did by making us human. If it wasn't clear before Christ came, and it wasn't, there could have been no way to miss it after he came. For God to take on our body, our nature, showed how great it was. But God didn't want to lose us. What's our typical attitude of the human person in the modern world? High or low, we've got through this. Right? Are our beginnings high or low? I mean, in the modern world, I've done this before. Are our beginnings... In the ancient world, were our beginnings high or low? In the modern world, are our beginnings high or low? Ancient world, high or low? High. Why? Gods. Because so many of us are descended from the gods, from great things. In the modern world, are the are human beginnings high or low? Low. Low, how? Low. Apes? Big Bang? We came out of electrons. We came out of nothing, or apes, or, you know... Our descendants are so the tendency of the modern world is is to demean our nature to shrink it think think about how well that conforms to what Christ did by taking on our nature when we take the Eucharist taking him into us because remember one of the old adages of the early church was that 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 word I used theosis God became man so that man could become God. That by participating more and more in Christ's late nature, we become more like Him. Something divine enters our nature. So when Christ took our nature back to heaven, as humans when we return to heaven, are we going to be the same? No. Look at the transfiguration. We, we will have a glorified body. We will be sons of God. We will share in a divine nature. That notion is so foreign, so foreign to a modern world. So, <clears throat> the mode of knowing in purgatory is wonder, that some glorious thing is happening. Wonder, wonder, mean, Aristotle said, the beginning of wisdom is wonder. The beginning of wisdom is wonder. Why? Because wonder means you want to know the causes of things. Your mind wants to know. Children wonder easily, right? Why does the ball bounce back? Why doesn't it just fall there? Why do plates break? When you're pulling a wagon and there's a ball in it, and you suddenly stop the wagon, why does the ball go front? Why do things like that happen? Kids ask all the time. The sad thing is, as we get older, we think we know, we're professionals, we have all the answers, and we lose the sense of wonder. So purgatory is, it, it's like a, a place where we begin to remember what we forgot. That we don't know who we were, once were. We're trying to recover something we've lost. Is that yeah, clear? Like the innocence you had when you were young? Yeah, exactly. And it's, that's a good word. Because remember when Christ said, be the children. I don't think he was mean saying, be dumb like kids. <laughs> He's saying, recover some of that simplicity, that innocence that you had as a child, because without it there's something wrong. Our pride gets in the way. Okay. Um, any questions about any of that before we... Uh, Bob, you know, <clears throat> obviously uh, my wife and I never were here with you guys earlier when you were going through all these different... Uh, yeah. 
teaching and that what you just said about Christ coming to the world in our body <laughs> and what that meant for us later on I had never heard that before that was the first time and it to me <coughs> it adds so much more significance to him coming to the earth <laughs> not just to pay for our sins yes but to take us as we learn from him back with him and to be part of that yeah so that's yeah incredible. yeah there's so little help we get that from the modern world just so little the only place where it is in the church really because the world outside the church doesn't see our human nature that way I mean truly you know we I've said this before how, how many people when they go up to receive communion really feel that they're taking God into themselves and being transformed you can just take it for granted you know you've been doing it all your life you go do it there should be some sense of wonder or at least it's good if we experience that wonder because it means we're more in the presence of something so so much greater than we are and to be glad for it um, and to live that in our life that's a different thing the world outside the world outside puts us in fantasies movies books if you look at what's coming out of I mean, look at that world that's why I when when I see a rare movie I mean a really good movie I'm so grateful that there are good artists who can help us recover that because so much of what's coming out of Hollywood is so bad um, so much about the world pulls us that way to them and and what the church offers is very very different just two quick notes about movies um, there's a movie coming out I don't know if it's in March or whatever um, of Abby Johnson and she worked for the uh, birth control or the uh, family planning or whatever okay it's coming out her movie and of course that's a big thing where she converted and got away from that she she spoke at the Good Shepherd about what, what what's happening to us with abortion and the things she told were just so frightening horrifying horrifying yeah. and then the other yeah. one is I think a true life experience that happened uh, I forget what it's called where um, the son dies on the table for an hour and then he comes back to life mm -hmm. and uh, they were interviewing the actress who plays that and it's coming out I think in March as well so. yeah. when they come out let us know yeah I will. okay when Dante and Virgil uh, emerged from hell remember they've just gone through an experience which I think we're meant to see as an inversion of the Eucharist all the last scenes in the inferno have to do with eating people eating each other um, um, Ugolino eating Ruggiero, Satan eating Brutus Cassius, all and the feast images. Alberigio committed his murders when he invited his family for a dinner. The the dinners dinners are mythically life giving. Take food away from us, what happens? We we so take food for granted today. God. It's life-giving, so we, Homer teaches we have to be careful of food because we can so easily abuse it, you know, so easily. Um, it gives us life. So in the final cantos of the Inferno, Dante presents all these images doing, dealing with food, but they're inversions of the Eucharist. Satan's eating humans. Humans are eating humans. Christ, as God, man offered himself as food to us for humans and remember he said your ancestors ate manna they died that's so important your ancestors ate manna they died 
That food would never keep them alive, even if it sustained them. I am the bread of life. I am the eternal bread. Eat me and you will never die. That's how important the Eucharist is. What he's doing is bringing food, in himself, divine and human, and offering it to us. So everything that happens in the inferno at the end is an inversion of all that we know about Christ in heaven. He offered his life as actual food, um, not just in our heads, um, for all of us, our minds, our bodies, all of us. So when Virgil and Dante emerge on the shores of purgatory, <coughs> it's Easter Sunday morning. It's a moment of a newly risen, resurrected life. They've just come from hell, the, the realm of the dead, and they've entered the realm of the living. So um, the, the fact that it's in Easter Sunday is not an accident. It's Dante's way of showing symbolically that a resurrection has taken place, that a new life. Dante's entered a new life. <clears throat> He's faced himself. Remember, the poem begins with Dante going up the mountain. He tries to go up alone, by himself, i.e. in pride. Can't do it. Virgil comes and says, you have to go a long way around. It's like my literature courses. <laughs> Promise. <laughs> oh God, I have to stop making promises. Um, or fulfill them, I guess would be a better thing to do. Um, they've entered on a, a new way of life. Dante's learned to see himself. He, he, there is not a sin he hasn't faced. And it's clear that he's been learning and, and that even in some ways he's changing the way he acts. Um, when he comes to the mountain, they're met by Cato, and Cato's pretty gruff with them, and asks them to go to the shoreline and wash up. So they go to the shoreline and they pick these reeds which immediately spring back again. They in themselves are symbolic of um, giving themselves a new life. It's humility that if you give yourself, you will rise again. So um, Dante's face is washed. He takes off all the grime. It's a way of saying, you, you, this is really good. <laughs> you cannot go up, you cannot go up purgatory feeling sorry for yourself. That's something you were to get rid of in the inferno. If you're gonna do anything now, wash your face. It's like a parent saying when your child's crying, go wash your face, stop your whining, be happy, we're, you know, whatever it is we're going to do. Um, and remember that the mountain itself um, has a long history of um, sort of mythic meanings. Um, um, the climb of purgatory is an arduous ordeal. To correct our sins is never easy. It's a hard work. We've been doing something for a long time. It's hard to correct it. We have to take on this hardship to do it. Mary, interestingly, has been imaged as a mountain in, the, in church history. Um, and the more important one for me, I want to go to this here, is, is in Dante's um, Inferno itself. Turn to page 200. <coughs> This is at the end of the first canto. I want to come to the scene um, involving Cato and look at it in a minute. Before we do, I want to touch on this 
These are Dante's words describing himself as he and Virgil go to the water to wash his face. Page two and this is the end of Canto One. When he would reach the place where the cool shade allowed the dew to linger on the slope, resisting a while longer the sun's rays, my master placed both of his widespread hands gently upon the tender grass. I, who understood what his intention was, offered my tear-stained face to him, and he made my face clean, restoring its true color. Purgatory in one sense represents an action of restoration. It's helping us to recover the natural good we lost with the fall. So that, that word is not accidental. Made my face clean, restoring its true color, once buried underneath the dirt of hell. At last we touched upon the lonely shore that never yet has seen its water sailed by one who then returned to tell the tale. There, as another willed, he girded me, O miracle, when he pulled out the reed, immediately a second humble plant sprung up from where the first one had been picked. What Dante's asking is that we have an entirely new vision of the, in the way that we look at the world. If we see through humility, if we see through humility, instead of seeing everything darkly, we, we see a new life springing up. Denies the humility. <coughs> We're out of hell now. What is beginning here is a new way of seeing. But my question here is, um, this image of the past, at last we touch upon the lonely shore that never yet has seen its waters sailed by one who then returned to tell his tale. Where have we heard those lines before? We already did this twice now in the, in the Inferno. Turn to page four. Middle of page four, Canto one, line twenty seven. So I, although my mind was turned to flee, turned round to gaze once more upon the past that never let a living soul escape. I rested my tired body there a while and then began to climb the barren slope. I dragged my stronger foot and limped along. Um, he describes himself as getting through a pass that never let a living soul so far survive. Turn to 145. We were here. <clears throat> Remember when Odysseus is describing his journey with his men and telling his men, you're Greeks. Consider where you came from. You were not born to live like mindless brutes, but to follow paths of excellence and knowledge. On page 145, five times we saw the splendor of the moon grow full and five times waste away again. Since we had entered through the narrow pass, when there appeared a mountain shape darkened by distance that arose to endless heights 
I had never seen another mountain like it. Our celebration soon turned into grief. From the new land there rose a whirling wind that beat against the forepart of the ship and whirled us around three times. <laughs> That's interesting. Whirled us around three times in churning waters. The fourth blast raised the stern up high and sent the bow down deep as pleased another will. And the ship goes down. Okay. Back to 200. At last we touched upon the lofty shore that never yet has seen its waters sailed by one who returned to tell the tale. There as another willed, come atue piake, I think. I'm not sure that that's the correct pronunciation, but as another. Come atue piake. There as another willed, he girdled, girded me, a miracle, when he pulled out the reed, immediately a second one. What's going on? What is this mountain? We saw, we I think we talked about this with Odysseus, didn't we? No? It was purgatory for Odysseus. Why, why, why is it associated with Odysseus's death? Why does what happened there lead to his death? It's ship sinking. And what's different between the mountain then, under those circumstances, and the mountain now for Dante and Virgil? What is this mountain? He's trying to do it on his own. Uh, who? Odysseus. Odysseus. Uh, crossed the... He was on the water, right? Mm-hmm. So he was trying to complete that journey on his own. Yeah. Whereas here, Dante's got Virgil, who has God. 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 As another wills. Can man complete himself? Uh, the other way to put the wait. I'm, let me flesh this out. Some. We believe in a fall. That after the fall, we lost something of who we were, and we're wounded. Um, and, and we we gave ourselves that wound when we turned against God. Our sin, our original sin, is against Him, not ourselves. All the sins that we commit against each other come from that original sin. Can we recover our wholeness without His help? No. That's why Christ came. So in Odysseus, what we have is an, an image of the for Dante. And his, it's his critique of the ancient world in the same way that Virgil critiqued Homer. Remember, Virgil thought the Greeks were too independent. He believed in the common good. That the Greeks tried to, strove to be too great. In, they were too individualistic. They cared more about themselves than the, than the common good. Rome is the universal city where all people come together. So Virgil critiqued Homer. Dante's critiquing, critiquing that whole ancient world. Because what he's showing is that there is this longing for man to complete himself, but it's a sin of pride to believe that he can do it on his own. That it's only with God's help. So the first initiative is God's, not man's. When Odysseus wanted to climb that hill, it was a sign of his hubris. That he wanted to, to complete himself, to do this great thing. And he goes down. <coughs> Well, <clears throat> what's the difference? Dante has seen himself. He knows he can't do it by himself. And he goes to the sea, to the water, almost like a baptism moment. He washes himself. That's, a, that's an expression of his, his humility. 
now he can go as another wills. So in the one case it was as another wills to Jesus' death. In this case it's um, Dante's um, restoration, the recovery of his all that he lost from the fall. What's at the end at the top of purgatory? Eden. When he gets to Eden, he will he will have completed his journey to recover that completeness that he had in the fall. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. Linda, did you? I'm taking it in. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't hear your last word. I didn't even remember what they were. I couldn't hear you. Eden, hmm? Eden, Eden was. I, I got Eden. You repeated it. Eden. Eden, yeah. I just didn't hear you the first time. I was is everybody okay? What's going on? So the mountain, this is the mountain we saw in the beginning that Dante couldn't climb. So it's not just a mountain, it's a symbol of a whole enterprise. Something about the spirit in man that's not oriented properly to his world. Dante thinks he can do this on his own, he can master this, finds out he can't, he has to learn to see himself. Now he has, now he can begin again. He can go up the mountain with Virgil's help and with God's help. And remember the one rule, the one rule, we'll get it from Cato in a second, the one rule of the mountain is uh, when the sun goes down, you cannot climb. Because it's God's rule, it, it's a way, it's, it's another way of saying work with your limits. Stop trying to overstep your limits. You know, work within your limits, who you are. Stop trying to be more than you are, somebody you're not. You can't do this without God's help. So when the sun goes down, everybody has to rest. And that's the one rule of the mountain. Because they're only there with God's help. That's, that's what's going on. So the mountain is just not a mountain. It's, it's an image of the labor that we take on in our efforts to work with God, to heal ourselves, to recover our wholeness. Okay. I don't think I'm doing very well on time today. Again. Hello, Sue. Pray for me. I hope. <laughs> I do. Good. I hope. I, every once in a while, I forget. When we do our prayers, I for weeks and weeks I've been asking, or trying to remind myself to ask you guys to pray for Suzanne and me, particularly me. Um, we're grateful for your prayers. I wish you would. Glad for them if you would keep us in your prayers. Okay, let's look at Cato because there's an interesting thing going on here. <coughs> Page 198, 199. This is the first introduction to Cato. Though the you've done uh, C.S. Lewis's Two We Have Faces, I can't, I can't look at Cato and not be reminded of Oriol's father. I know that's probably not going to be, you know, remember, Cato's at the bottom of, this is, this is where we went on, on Monday, when I guess people got hung up on it. Cato's a suicide. He, he was a Roman Republican who took his life. We, the, I think the class got stirred up about this on Monday night. Cato's a suicide. I, I'm not going to go into this. I want to just put this out and I'm going to go on. Um, why is he there? We know, we know that Dante believes, as a Catholic, that his belief, 
it is in accord with the theology of the church that suicide was bad. So here, the, here at the bottom, what an irony, at the bottom of purgatory, we've got a man who's, who's the step into purgatory who committed suicide. <clears throat> I think the difference is this. Despair is our greatest sin, the, the greatest temptation. Des despair means despair, pair, hope, that's the French, despair. To be without hope is to ignore God. It's to pretend like he's not there. You know, the church's words, be everywhere and always thankful. When hard times come and we despair, we saw the Medusa. Remember, if you look at her, you turn into stone. Despair is a result of our pride in thinking we're capable to do these. And when we find that we're not, Instead of humbling ourselves, we turn from God. And instead of humbling ourselves and going to God, we turn from Him. That's an act of despair. Okay? <clears throat> Cato, so when most people commit suicide, it's in despair. I mean, they have no reason to live. The modern world has got to be worse for that, I think, than any period I'm, I'm aware of in history. If you, because the modern world is taking God out. Take God out. What do people have? I mean, I, this is really serious. What do people have to live for in our world? It's just a dark, dark world. Um, Plato, or I mean, uh, Cato lived in at a time when the uh, Roman Republic was in danger of collapsing. The Republican values. Remember when Caesar became emperor, Brutus and Cassius plotted to kill him because they knew that the freedoms that Rome had won would be destroyed. Cato took his life not in despair but as a way of affirming the freedom that, w that went with Rome. So I think in Dante's mind, he's here for that reason. And rather than get into a discussion, I just, I'm just asking you to trust on that for a moment, because obviously it's a, it's a touchy and it's a difficult subject. I wanted to look at this for another reason. <clears throat> Cato sees these two figures emerging. One of them's in his body. And Cato knows that Souls only get to purgatory who die. So here's Dante in his body, and Cato's perplexed by it. 198 at the bottom. We have not broken heaven's timeless laws. This man still lives. Minus does not buy me. I come from that same round where the chaste eyes of your dear Marcia still plead with your soul. O blessed heart, to hold her as your own. For love of her then, bend your will to ours. So there's a law. Cato is the enforcement of it. If you remember C.S. Lewis's or, um, Two Have Faces, remember how stern Oriole's father was. He was not a good man. He was not a good king. But I'm, all, I'm taken by that moment, if you remember, towards the end of the book when Oriole begins having dreams and visions. And there's that one vision that I think is a turning point in the, in the story where her father takes her in the dream, put, digs down, after level, after level, after level, after level, until they finally get to the, what's the room called? The something room? The pillar room? Forces her to the mirror and says, look, now tell me who you are. And for the first time, Oriel says, I'm Ungat. She's this horrible, it's the first time that she has to look at her sins. I, let me put it this, would she have done that if her father had not been as stern as he was in that moment? So whatever we don't like about that man, that moment wouldn't have taken place without it. So what, what Dante's showing us here is something like that. Without this sternness in Plato, 
purgatory is impossible. He's the guardian. Because there's so many ways to tempt into it. People want to get around laws. They want to be nice, or they want to whatever excuses, or you know, um, everybody wants to go there. But but will they meet the conditions of doing it? There's a this deep deep sternness to Cato's character. He's protecting the law of the mountain. So to expect him to be nice would mean to walk over him, do whatever you want, go on your way. That's not what's going on here. There's a sternness needed to protect this law because it's so easily violated. So Virgil says, we were allowed God's helping us here. And then he says, of your blessed Marcia still plead with your soul, O blessed heart, to hold her as your own. He said, I come from that round where Marcia, with her chaste eyes, the woman you loved, um, for love of her, then bend your will to ours, allow us to go through your seven realms, and I shall tell her how you have been kind. That is, he's partly bribing him. Let us go through. When I return to hell, I'll tell your beloved. If you will let me speak your name below. Marcia was, this is Cato now. Marcia was so enchanting to my eyes, he answered then, and that while I was alive, there was no wish of hers I would not grant. She dwells below, beyond the evil river now, and can no longer move me by that law decreed upon the day I issued forth. Now what do we learn from what's going on here, and particularly from Cato's words? Will Cato and Marcia ever meet again? No. So what do we? Sorry. He's on the wrong side of the river. Who's on the wrong side? She is. She is. Cato's on the wrong side. He's on the right. Who's on the right side of the river? She is. She is. She is. She's in hell. She's on the other side. Oh, okay. I misread that. So what do we learn here? What's why does Dante even bring Marcia up here? Hard, painful lesson. We saw it again and again with Dante and Hell. And she, she is basically stuck where she is. She has no, she has no knowing, so she has no remorse. She has, she's not going to move from where she is. But he is, he knows. He has knowing, and therefore he. And what he says is, I can no longer be moved, or, or uh, and can no longer move me by that law upon the day I issued forth. So he he killed himself, and he killed himself because he was in despair. No, oh, he would. He'd be in hell. Okay. No, he didn't. Okay. Okay. Well, he did kill himself. Um, Wait, does everybody understand that? This is so crude. He killed himself in despair, took his life in despair, according to Dante's belief. He would not be where he is. Okay. The understanding is, and, and that's the way it's presented in the Roman textbook, he was a great defender of freedom, a lover of freedom. When he took his life, it was his way of affirming the freedom that he knew was about to be destroyed. It was his way of, of answering all the corruption that was taking place and saying no. Um, if it was despair, he'd be in hell. But anyways, go ahead. Tim. Okay, so so he has he has an ability to see and understand, and she doesn't. And he and did he love her? 
Yes, he did. He said, I would have done anything she asked. Yeah. Now, how would you describe him now? He will not do anything. He can't be moved by that. Right. Will he pity her? No. Or himself? No. No. That's, I think that's what's done. Because this is the first of lots of episodes where we're going to see people in the same family separated from heaven and hell. Can the people in heaven feel sorry for those they've lost? We've already seen that. That's a disordered love, if that's what they chose. So in one sense, Dante's showing us how hard love is. The sternness that's associated with Cato here. Is everybody following? He can't be moved by her anymore, because if he were, it means he would have not fully, he'd be doing what Dante was doing back in hell, being moved by all the suffering, when the last thing he should have been doing was being moved by it. People made these choices, they don't. Remember, we're in final ends. We're not in the real world as we know it, where people are in between. In one sense, it, it, makes, it, it makes it all the more imperative. If we see somebody doing something wrong that, that endangers that person, we have got to do something to say no. If pity gets in it and we enable, it's going to go on. What Dante's shown is how important the sternness is to say it, because otherwise they'll be they'll be stuck in that that place. So here, on the very outset, Dante's giving a, a fore glimpse of something we're going to see, and it's interesting to me when we get there. This I almost can't wait to get there. When Dante gets through the the anti purgatory into the gates of hell and starts purgatory proper. On the first level of pride, guess what the first examples will be? What were the two greatest temptations, the two greatest wrongs Christ had to deal with? At least as I read the Bible, I may be wrong in this book. What were the greatest wrongs that he had to encounter again and again and again? One was from the religious leaders of his time, would you say? The other was the family. It said, anybody who loves father and mother more than me, that's one place. Another time he said, I came to bring division between a mother and a daughter, a father and a son. Another was when he called the man to come with him and the man said, let me first go bury my dad. The temptations in all those examples are the family. <coughs> C.S. Lewis's, when Oriole makes her last temptation, remember the last <coughs> temptation was her sister. Mm-hmm. Because our emotions are most susceptible then. Where can they not be? Who do we? What, what's the dearest attachments we have on this side of heaven in this world? It's the most dangerous. Christ is saying, "Let your emotions for your family become more important than me." And He said that again and again. Oh, by, and remember the words to the man. He said, "Come, follow me." <clears throat> and the man said, first let me bury my father." Mm-hmm. He said, "What were his words?" Let the dead bury the dead. What he's saying is. Let the unliving, those people who make their attachments to their family more important, are unliving. They are dead. It's like the Walking Dead stuff that makes up movies today, the Walking Dead. He's saying that there's something wrong. You're, only, you're going through the motions of life. You're not with, what's the source of eternal life? What should people be living? Christ. So here, here at the bottom of purgatory, Dante's giving us a sort of capstone mini-capsule, is that the word? View 
of some of the largest issues. And it's interesting the way it looks back to health. Cato cannot let that happen. Well, yeah. So, just real quick. So you're saying, you know, prior to today, I, I never knew there was another side of suicide. So somebody get takes a suicide as a protest or to say they're not in agreement with whatever. It's different from a regular suicide who has grief and despair and all of that. To me, it, it's, it's it is such a murky. You know, I'm I'm sort of reluctant to get into it, David. Okay. But I I would say I have no problem with what you just described. The church recognizes that it's a terribly difficult issue. What I can say generally, this is a generalization, because when you get to particular cases, it's just who knows the soul of a person. You know, the samurais took their life as a matter of honor. That means it's an egotism, right? Rather than be defeated or be dishonored, they would kill themselves. I believe underneath that was despair. Their, their, their ego was so attached to their sense of honor that they would be willing to take their lives rather than suffer humiliation. Now think about how, what did Christ do on the cross as a human being? He should have taken all humiliations away. He doesn't because our pride is so often so great. But what he showed us is a complete humiliation. If we don't give up the world completely, something has always got a hold on us. Would the samurai suffer a humiliation? No. They would take their lives. It was a, what do you call that word? The Kari Kari. Romans were like that a lot. The Romans did the same thing. If they were faced with humiliation of being taken, they would take their lives. That was a Roman thing to do. Cleopatra does it in... Uh, Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra. I, I wish we'd do, I almost want to do that play with you guys. <laughs> no, I won't do it without Sue's approval. Shakespeare's dealing with Rome just before Christ came in Anthony and Cleopatra. And what he does with Anthony and Cleopatra, I think most critics just absolutely misread. Cleopatra takes her life, Anthony does too. I won't go beyond that except to say it's so clear that more is going on than a Roman way of looking at it. He's seeing something most people don't. Mm -hmm. But it was a Roman thing to do to take their life before they would allow themselves to be captured because the humiliation was too great. So there are cultures who have cultivated this. We know that. What, what the, Ro the way the Roman historians presented Cato is that his love of freedom was so great. So Dante sees that as an affirmation of something, not an act of despair. Try to get into the individual psyche of a person, the church is so careful about that because, particularly in the modern world, you know, it's just, it's, a, it's so difficult. So I don't want to go into it any more than that except to say that. The, the other thing was when you said about an enabler, mm -hmm. if you know somebody's doing wrong and you yeah. enable that. Right. So if you have somebody who's an alcoholic or a drug addict, can you enable that? Mm -hmm. You're implicated in the sin. Okay. Let's make it even. Let's go. Let's make this even darker because Dante. You know Dante would be really tough on priests. How many priests enabled the sex offenders? Yeah. I mean, that's just coming to light in this church. Yeah. The, the 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 tendency of the so many priests is to it, God, is to emotionally sympathize, feel pity for a priest, rather than step up. So what we're seeing in the church is, in some sense, no different from what we see with an alcoholic or a 
that is your pity for somebody and your sense of the reputation that's to be lost keeps you from doing hard things. Who's going to like you? Is everybody clear? I always feel like we go to very touchy depths with this because we're all so close to this. Okay, here, quick, one last thing. One last thing. Page 202203. <clears throat> A ship of souls arrives at the shore of purgatory on page 203, about line 45. In exitu Israele de Egipto. They all were singing with a single voice. They're all singing. Oh, God, I'm sorry you're leaving now because I was going to do the cave imagery. But you go. I'm, I'm sorry. I have no, no, leave. Get, get this thing on tape. I will. Okay. I will. They were all singing with one voice, <clears throat> which shows their unity. They're all one going to purgatory. Um, Casella, who is a friend of Dante, disembarks with all the other souls, and, and, and he immediately recognizes Dante and goes to put his arms around him. Dante doesn't immediately. And then when Casella gets close, he does on page 204. Oh, empty shades whose human forms seem real. Three times I clasped my hands around his form. As many times they came back. This is a prelude to what's going to happen later with uh, Virgil and Stasius. There's no other way to describe it. C.S. Lewis called this, uh, or William Wordsworth called it this. It's a poem we're going to do together, by the way, shortly. Um, it's going to come up actually soon when we get through these infernal poems that I'm going to read. It's a little lyric called Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. Wordsworth describes a moment when he was out walking um, and he and his sister Dorothy used to walk the, the river areas, the, the forest areas of England. It's apparently this really, really beautiful area in England. They, if you know anything about William Wordsworth, you know that he loved nature, that that was his subject, that he, that he was taken by nature's forms and what he called the real presences of things and the beauty and the forms of them. Very platonic in some ways, but he, but he loved the physical beauty of nature. His sister died, he was out on a walk by himself, and he's overtaken, he's overtaken, we know that overtaken by the beauty of a scene, and he turns to express his wonder to his sister. And she's not there. And I think we've heard stories of people who die who lose a loved one. You know, let's say there's a widower on a couch and he's watching a movie and his wife's dead. He's watching the movie and he's so taken up. And he, he will have one of those moments where he's so taken that he'll turn to her. Because for a moment he forgets. Surprised by joy. Surprised by joy. So one of the, one of the experiences again of purgatory is wonder. We are left in wonder at what we're seeing. And so often the joy associated with it. So Dante puts his arms three times. That is their love of each other so great that for a moment they forget that they're shades. Or Dante forgets that Casella is a shade. Now what happens on, on 205 um, is, is that Casella, because they love music, they love music. When they were when when they were alive together, about line 100. If no new law prevents remembering or practicing those love songs that once brought peace to my restless longing in the world, I said, 
pray, sing, and give a little rest to my poor soul. Remember, Dante's been complaining for the last two about climbing the mountain. He, he just keeps getting tired. And Virgil, Virgil keeps saying, stop whining, get going, move. He said, pray, sing, and give a little rest to my poor soul, which burdened by my flesh has climbed this far and is exhausted now. Amore cena, lamente mi ragiona. Began the words of his sweet melody. Their sweetness still is sounding in my ears. Go down a few lines. What negligence to stand around like this. Run to the mountains. Shed that sloth which still does not let God be manifest in you. Just as a flock of pigeons in a field peacefully feeding on the grain and tares no longer scudding, strutting proud of how they look, immediately abandon all their food. Fly. Dante and Virgil flee to the mountain. Notice Cato's sternness. He's going, what in the world are you doing? Get on. Now, why this moment here? This line, this is the, this is Dante and Virgil as they're about to set out on the journey of purgatory. It really matches up with one of the, which was the beginning of Dante's descent into hell when he was dealing with sin proper. Both of them had to do with art. Do you remember which one the first one was in the Inferno? What took Francisca and Paolo into their sin? What were they doing? Wow. I need to give some quizzes. I'm going to have to start giving quizzes. What were Francisca and Paolo doing before they committed their... They were enraptured by art. Was it Michelangelo? It wasn't Michelangelo. They were reading um, the Arthurian romances. Remember that Lancelot and Guinevere were making love and it was an adulterous love? And Dante's way of describing is they reached a point, how do you put it, and then they read no more. That is, they're so overcome, they're, they're so overcome by what art presents to them that the influence of that artwork is so great that it leads them into that. Now think about the, co the coincidence, the, the coinciding of those two moments. Hell begins with that moment, what takes them into the sin? Art. Dante and Virgil are ready to begin their purgatory. What holds them up? Music. What Dante's doing, and remember he's a poet, implicitly what he's doing is showing the power of art, the danger that it presents to it. It led Francisco and Paola into their sin. Here it's delaying Dante when he, when he should be doing everything in his power to get along. He's supposed to be correcting himself. So there's that sternness. What negligence to stand. How many people like stern people like that? Okay, let me... I think I've got... If I've got... I'm going to take two minutes and then end. Where have we left and where, where are we going? Remember Plato's cave, those of you who, David should be here, God bless him. Remember Plato's cave, those of you who haven't been here, and those of you who have just, if you can just be patient for a second. 
Remember, according to Plato, all of us live in a cave. All of us, even if we don't see ourselves that way, we all do. According to Plato, we're all like prisoners in a cave who are chained to a wall. Up behind us is a fire, and in front of the fire are people holding books. And the light from this fire shines the shadows of this image on a wall. So those of us below see our appearances or images or shadows on a wall. Everybody in the cave takes these as reality. What projects them on the wall? These books, the people carrying books. So think about think about Homer, Virgil, Plato, Aristotle, Heidegger, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, Darwin, you name it. What Plato's saying is those books shape the way we see the world. And we take what those books project as reality. <coughs> but they're really shadows of something because outside the cave is a real world. This is a world of decay, everybody's dying. And the way they're living is according to seeming. They're all living according to appearances. This is what defines their lives. Okay? <coughs> so Plato's metaphor here is that um, all of us live in this world according to what defining ourselves in terms of what we see with our senses and what we understand in our minds on the basis of what we've learned from books. What Plato's doing is offering us a way of critiquing that world of seeing that there's something more than what these books teach us. If we live just by what these books teach us, we're caught in this cave, even though we think we're free. So educated people typically think, I'm smarter, I know this, I know Freud, I know Marx, I know Plato, I know Socrates. What he's saying is, it isn't until one of the persons begins to question and sees that things are not as they seem, there's something outside. And it's the fact that he begins to question himself that he begins to get free. Okay, that's Plato's cave. Now hold on for a second. Remember, the, the basis for this is Socrates. And the story behind that is, it was reputed at the time of Socrates that he was the wisest man alive. That was the reputation he had. Socrates was so troubled by that reputation that he went around talking with people to find out if it was true because he believed that it wasn't. He didn't think he was the smartest man. And as he talked with people and asked them questions about what they knew, he realized that if he was the smartest man alive, because that's what the gods said and the gods never lie, it was because he was the only man who knew that he didn't know. That's what made him different. And it confirmed his experiences because everywhere he went when he talked with people, they always believed that they had the answer, that they knew. And you know the story. He questioned people who claimed they knew justice or beauty or truth or knowledge or whatever it is they claimed. And when he began to question them, um, his questions made them see that they didn't know what they thought they did. There's two words in the um, Greek called electic and aporia. Electic is that, that moment of puzzlement when you realize things aren't the way you think they are. And aporia means you turn 
and you move. So like what our, our word, our, our term for that would be conversion. So at the heart of the whole platonic enterprise, the Socratic platonic enterprise, are these moments of conversion, turning, realizing we don't understand what we think we do, and it changes our lives. It, it makes us humbler, better. Okay? So he's giving us an image of what we today would call the beginnings of self-knowledge. John Paul II's Fide Oratio, which I think is an extraordinary word. Fide Oratio begins with a reference to Socrates. He goes back to the Socratic story and says, the whole quest of reason in the world since Socrates should be towards self-knowledge. So we begin to understand who we are. And we won't do that unless we begin to question ourselves. So, Plato's saying, it's only when a man begins to question what's going on that he reflects on them that he can begin to get out of the cave. Until he does, he's stuck there. Thinking that he's in the real world, when in fact he's not. Okay? So, and what's, what's principally on his mind is Homer. I mean, Plato's critiquing Homer in this because he's, most people have been raised by Homer and are, you know, their feelings have been shaped by him. Now, two things here that I want everybody to see. Um, one is that in one sense, remember what the definition of hell was? Holy, whole. Kalatane, um, concealed from Calypso. Remember, hell is a place where people live in a darkness. So in one sense, Plato's working with that, that man lives in this darkness even while he thinks he's in the light. It's only when he begins to question himself that he can come out of the cave and see the real, eternal truth. Not dying things, but something that's unchanging, eternal. That's where eternal, real life. That's, that's hopefully where the soul would go. That's Plato's hope. Okay? Now, I hope you can all see the relevance of this to hell and trusting. A couple of interesting things here. One is, Plato believed that knowledge was sufficient to get him for a person to get himself out of the cave. If he would begin to question and see that he didn't know, it could take him out. Okay? Now, clearly there's a questionable character to that knowledge. It's partly skeptical. Right? You're disbelieving things, so you begin to question them. If you begin to do that, you get free of your chains. They don't have the same hold on you. Right? Here's, here's what Christ did. <coughs> Wait, so, remember, the, the purpose of the ancient world, there were three qualities to the soul, re, two, three faculties, reason, demos, and the appetite. And Plato said that reason controls the appetites by means of this demos, this anger, and he, he imaged it in terms of a charioteer driving two horses, one a black, one a white. He said the charioteer governs the black horse by means of the white one. Reason, themos, appetites. Themos and appetites were appetites, both appetitive, but directed to do different ends. Themos was the desire for the good, the true, the beautiful, right? The appetites are appetites for physical things. Food, sex, drink. Plato said, we, the reason controls these by means of this. Our love of noble things keeps us honest. So the great task for him was how to control this. I'll put it this way. When Francisco and Paolo are, are reading Lancelot, 
how will reason will reason be strong enough to control their sexual desires for each other? I hope everybody sees no. The the problem is reason. We've seen that all the way through Virgil. That it, reason reason is a great thing, but it's also very fragile and very limited. And, and most rational people don't want to admit that. I mean, because we get such power through it. It can be flawed. Yeah, terribly flawed. Right. But the point I want to make here is Plato believed that reason was sufficient. If we could use reason to question ourselves, we could grow in self-knowledge and get out of the cave. Okay? Now, remember what's at issue here is this. If reason learns to control the appetites through this thumus, this anger, the love of noble things, it can become a just soul. The great task for Plato was how to order our own souls. We've gone through this before. How can we be just to another person when our own souls are disordered? We won't, we won't, be, able to, we won't be able to give what's due to another person until we've learned to order ourselves. So what was the great theme of Plato's Republic? Mind your own business. Learn the nature of your soul. Take on your own problems because until you do, until you order them, you'll never be able to be to another person what you want to be. So the great virtue of the ancient world was justice. What's due? That's true for the ancient pagan world. It's true for the ancient Hebrew world. What's the great virtue in the Old Testament? Justice. God's justice. Okay? So, on the one hand, from the ancient world, we, the, great, the great virtue of the ancient world is justice, or law, understood in a certain way. God gave Moses the law. Okay. What Plato didn't see, and there's no way he could have seen, is that reason by itself is not sufficient to get out of the cave. Or Christ would never have had to come into it. The Christian belief that Christ comes in, he brings a divine nature into the cave, into our world, to do something we can't to achieve justice. So what he does is offer us a love that's undeserving. He didn't come because we deserved it. We all know that. He came because we didn't deserve it. Right? So what's the great problem facing the Christian in Dante's world? Bringing justice and love together. Justice and mercy. Let me put this differently. A law, a law without mercy becomes cruel. A compassion without justice becomes enabling. St. Thomas would have said, a compassion without law is disaster. Those are Thomas's words. The great task facing us after, the, after Christ enters is to bring those two things together. When Christ went to a, the cross, it was to fulfill a law. He didn't break a law, he fulfilled it. And you know, I mean, if you think about the political spectrum today, it's so easy for people to present themselves as compassionate in a way that does away with laws. Or to enforce laws with no compassion. It's much easier to do one or the other. The great task for a Christian is learning to bring law and... Justice. Just, or justice and love, law... And mercy, justice and mercy, law, love, 
to bring what seem to be opposites together. What's going on in purgatory is exactly that. Every one of the souls is fulfilling a law. They're acknowledging a wrong. At the basis of it is this sternness of Cato. That there's something important to be lost if you don't follow the law. And he's going up. He's going to see people at every level are fulfilling a law and growing in love. When they finish, they will be returned to the Eden, their original home. They'll have the completeness they once had. There won't be a tendency in them to break a law, which is what cost them the garden. Right? They violate the law. Um, there won't be one thing at the expense of another. They will be complete. Love in law, justice and mercy. <laughs> What's the image? And the lion will lie down with the lamb, and the, something will kiss the serpent. Or you know, that those contraries will be taken away, and the soul will be whole again. So purgatory is the struggle to recover that lost wholeness, who we once were. Let me stop. Okay. Any, any questions on that? Phenomenal. I said phenomenal. <clears throat> I'll have to play it, listen again. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, the undeserving love. There's certain things I'm hung up on. Well, you know. All suicide is despair, and you're saying it's not. But I'll listen again, and then okay. I'll write my question. Well, put it this way. I mean, if that, remember, well, to put it, we were fallen creatures. When Christ came into the world, did he come because we were complete or sinless? No. No, he's giving us a love we didn't deserve. That's a, by the way, that's a divine thing, not a human. Could, could the ancient world have given a divine love to a human when he didn't deserve it? No. no. The, the pagan world has the sense of a real nobility. The Jewish world, too. Righteousness, nobility, dignity, greatness. Christ came in because he said, we are fallen creatures. He offered us a love we didn't deserve, but he did it in a way that fulfills the law at the same time. So the point I'm making here is, when we think about purgatory. It's important to remember that two things are coming together. The souls are fulfilling the law. They're righting a wrong. They acknowledge they're wrong. They have to right it. There's a law in their nature. their own nature they have a law. The modern world denies that. The modern world denies that we have a own nature. Everything about the, it's interesting. Everything about the modern world denies Christianity. Every belief we have, every single belief we have is being denied. No nature, no God, no. I mean, all the, all the things that we depend on, they're not there. You In the modern world, make of yourself whatever you want. Do whatever you want. The cost of that is a horror if you look at the world. So Christ came into the world to offer us an undeserved love. But what, in the way that he did it, he fulfilled the law. He went to the cross to satisfy. We committed a wrong. He answered it. So what he did was bring those two things together as only a God could. Because there's no way there's no way we could have atoned for our sin. The only way that could have been done is by God because our sin was against a God. So what Christ did was really remarkable. I mean, it's just truly remarkable. And what's going on what's going on in the mountain? Truly remarkable. It's a transfiguration. The souls that are undergoing this purgation are being transformed. This isn't divine or Christ or anything, but I'm thinking of suicide. And in my head, I was arguing with you, but I just figured it out that, that all suicide is despair. And when it's 
it, it's wrong. That's not true. Because think of 9-11. Think of the suicide bombers. Right. That's out of honor for them. Right. 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 Remember what, what I tried to say, Linda, I hope I tried to put it together because I'm trying to be really careful that the whole question of suicide is such a delicate one. Well, that Wait, let me try. The, the church believes that it's wrong. Despair is wrong. Yeah. Cato, Dante's presentation of Cato is that he's there, even though he's a suicide, not because he acted out of despair, but because he acted out of a love of freedom. I don't want to, I don't, I mean, I can't, in the individual case where suicide takes place, the, the church always takes care because we, what goes on in a human being's soul is so obscure to us. What I'm giving are just general principles to, so that you can think about this, and it certainly at least as it applies here to Dante. But Cato wouldn't be there if Dante saw him killing himself out of despair. He would be in hell. Cato's there because in some way, implicitly, what he was doing was in hope. He believed, he, he believed in something good. Otherwise, it makes no sense. And remember, remember, this is allegorical. We're, there's an allegorical element. Is, will Plato ever see the top of purgatory? He's an image, of, he's an image allegorically, of the guard of, of the mountain. The guardian of the mountain. I, I have the same problem, by the way. I mean, he's an, he's an image of something human. This is the best way. He's an image of something human that has to be there to protect the law. Because if you don't, people are going to ignore that law to their own harm. Um, where's it going? Sorry, I jumped. He's an image of that. Where was I going? He's an image of that. Oh, Virgil. Virgil's been Dante's guide through the inferno. He's going to go all the way up Purgatorio. He will take him back to his natural end. Why? Because in Dante's mind, Virgil's the, the most complete human being to understand in his mind and his heart our human nature. So he's a perfect guide. He, when you remember, if you look at the um, virtuous pagans in hell, they're not suffering. They're not. They're not suffering from any. They're virtuous. They're good men. They're in a dim light. Why isn't in that circle when Virgil and Dante approach, he says, there's the master. He's not talking about Plato, he's talking about Aristotle. If Aristotle was the master, why didn't Aristotle lead Dante? Why Virgil? Virgil's a poet. And Dante loved him. And loved him. And I, but I also think allegorically he did love him. He loved Aristotle. I think it's because he's saying philosophers live too much in their minds. Virgil carried more of a heart. If, you, if you've read the Aeneid, you know that there's this sadness that runs through, that he, he feels the loss of things. So Virgil, as a poet, was, was capable of awakening emotions and responding to emotions more, more fully than a philosopher who's in his head. So Cato's at the bottom. When Virgil finishes his work with Dante, when he gets him back, he has to go back to hell. That seems cruel. I don't know that Dante believed that Virgil is in hell. Truly, I don't know. In fact, I, I, sometimes I suspect that he believes that he's not. But allegorically, it's his way of saying the natural man can recover this much with God's help. Remember, because 
help has been sent from God, Beatrice, and otherwise Dante wouldn't have. But it remains something to be left behind. Because when Dante gets to the top of Purgatory, Beatrice is going to come and pick up the rest of the journey herself. Because she can make clear divine things. He needs to know if he's to complete his journey, if he's to get back to God. So allegorically, Cato is an image of something that's necessary at the beginning of our purgation, this sternness. Virgil's an image of something that's helpful to get through our journey, but he will return back because that by itself, however good it is, is never enough to go back to God. Let me, I mean, put it differently. Is natural virtue enough to get back to God when heaven is a supernatural condition? No. In heaven, this transformed body, there's this going. Remember that God became man so that man could become God? When man goes to heaven, he's. We will be like. We shall see him as he is. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That we will be like Christ when we're in his presence. There will be something divine in us. That's scriptural. The natural goodness, no matter how perfect, by itself is never enough to get to God. And the trouble is, it can trap us here because we think we're so good. Because we are. Is that clear? So when we think about Cato and Virgil both, it's important to remember that they're allegorical images of something. I think they're real figures, but they're also allegorical. It, it's a it's a huge question. It's always been a huge question in my mind. What Dante thought about whether, because when we're going to get when we get to the Paradiso, we're going to see God doing things to get pagans out of hell. God will. It's hard to believe that Dante saw that God could do that with some people and he would have left Virgil there, but that may be my own... I love Virgil. Even though I may not suppose... I'm not sure here. Dante loves him too. He calls him Master, Father, Guide, Lord. Okay. Great. So are we going to go to the next eight? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah.